scripture this morning, you will find in John 15. I'm going to read it later in the sermon, actually, not early on, because I want you to hear some things first before we read it. I'm going to tell you the truth. I did not want to write this sermon this morning. I was telling Andy this morning that I did about 14 other things this week other than do this. I wrote it yesterday because, but I've been thinking about it all week. I just didn't want to sit down and write it. I'm not generally a procrastinator, and I usually don't procrastinate on sermon time, but I confess that I ran four and a half miles, um, processed about 200 emails, and wrote a good neighbor agreement with AutoZone about parking instead of doing this, because those all sounded like more fun. So why didn't I want to talk about this? Well, lots of reasons, I realized after I preferred cleaning out my purse to facing the blank page. And uh, one is shame. I was really not interested in talking about how we put Jesus in the angry dad conquering king box because I was really worried that I would shame dads. Bad, mad, sad, and broken dads of all kind. And I didn't want to do that, including my own, who I'll have to talk about today. And irritation. I, I, I hate that we do this to Jesus, that we put him in this box, though we really uh, don't do it so much to Jesus as the God of the Hebrews in um, the Hebrew Bible. And anger. I was feeling anger about this, not only my own, but also about our understanding of anger and, you know, in the traditional language, wrath, the wrath of God. So... As we have this series, last week we talked about Jesus as my boyfriend, and this week is Jesus as my angry dad or my conquering king. We'll continue to talk about the songs we sing, the way that we sing them, the things that we build into our spiritual DNA when we sing these songs. Today, it's, I had to write it, God as our angry dad. So it just seemed like a lot. It seemed like a lot to hit, and I wasn't really sure where to start. So I started thinking about where we actually, like why and how we actually talk about God as angry and as conquering, and what we do to God and what we do to ourselves when we talk about God that way, when we sing about God in that way. Think about the song Victory Chant. Glory, glory to the Lamb, you will take us into the land. We will conquer in your name and proclaim that Jesus reigns. Hmm. So, I mean, the human condition is multifaceted. You all know this. We, we have many ways in which we're broken, many ways in which we allow ourselves to become broken. We want someone, this is one of our big ways, we want someone to be in charge, darn it. We just want someone to be in control around here and to have their hands on the reins. We, we sort of want that to be us, but when it is, we don't really have any idea what to do. And so we really just want there to be like a force in the universe that holds us in check. And generally, the way this plays out is we want it to be a force, whatever we call that force. And we call this force God in the Christian tradition. We want that force to punish bad behavior, other people's, and reward good behavior, mine. And we want that force to be very predictable. 
Well, the science of psychology has taught us that predictability is one of the most powerful forces for human beings feeling healthy attachment and therefore security in the world. We require it, we need it, we love it, and we feel safe when we have it. Anyone who grew up in an unpredictable household knows that. But our old stories, the ones that we ourselves as a community of faith and with our ancestors have told and written over the course of millennia, the ones we've shared around hearths and dining room tables, our old stories make God seem arbitrary and indiscriminate, unpredictable. Take us into the land, we ask, and help us conquer in your name. Destroy our enemies, but just ours. That we want. But then the thought sort of creeps in. What about the story about that flood? That didn't seem very fair. It was a little over the top. Took out everybody, not just the ones that we think are bad. And what about the stories in Judges? Those things are just crazy. Nobody can predict what was going to happen or who was going to be hurt in those. What about the times when God didn't seem to help the people Israel at all and even was quoted as saying they would be destroyed? That seems a little bit unhelpful. And so we doubt and we get itchy and we want someone to be in charge. That same God that we've told these stories about, generated all of these ideas about, we want that person, that individual, that entity to be in charge, to rule us, but we want it to also be someone who cannot hurt us. And we aren't 100% sure that God is that predictable because after all, one of the things that we've developed over millennia as we worship this God is the understanding that this God is a mystery. And mysteries do not often go along with predictability. And then we go and we paste the name Father all over all of that and we make it even more messy. Our Father who art in heaven. The ancient Greeks and Romans imagined a pretty predictable world. And we do have to start here when we understand how we talk about, how do we get to this cartoon, which is an image that, in fact, Andy did not draw, but came from the internet and has been used in various places to teach children about who God is. And we start with ancient Greece and Rome where there was a pretty predictable world in which, by natural laws, they would say there were concentric circles of power, all headed by someone called the pater familias, the father of the family, the male head of the household. And we in the West continued this tradition. We sort of inherited it because we looked to Greece and Rome for our own formation, government-wise. And the Roman household was conceived of as an economic and uh, juridical unit or estate. The familia originally meant the group of serfs or slaves of an estate, everyone who was a part of that group. And that meaning later expanded to include the familia as a basic Roman social unit, the family as we know it. And the members and the properties of a familia were subject to the authority of the pater familias, the legal, social, and religious position of the Roman state, that small piece, that small puzzle piece, that interior concentric circle. Only a Roman citizen held the status of a pater familias, only them. 
And there can only be one holder of that office within a household, only one. And he was responsible for its entire well-being. Everything that happened in that household was the responsibility, ultimately, of the pater familias. Their reputation, their legal and moral propriety, and that person had complete say-so over absolutely everything. In other words, he was God. And this understanding expanded. So as the home was, there was also the state and the nation. And as the state was, so later the world understand, understood the world to be under God. With God as the pater familias of the ecclesia, of the household of God, of the world. So we come to our own understandings of the roles of people, of specifically, and I do have to say this, of men, not women. Out of these Greco-Roman designs, we still live this way. Our families, when unhealthy, still operate out of a pater familias model. It's the system we've inherited. Now, I want to be careful here, but I do want to talk about my own dad a little bit for a moment. He didn't have a very good role model in my grandfather. In fact, he had a terrible role model in my grandfather. But I think he really wanted to be a good parent. I don't think anyone sets out to say, I'd really like to have kids and then treat them not great. I get that. And he just didn't know how to do the impossible entirety of things that are expected of men who have children in our culture. It's an impossible job, right? I mean, think about it. You're supposed to protect them. And you're supposed to provide not only enough, but well. And you're supposed to raise good kids, moral kids, smart kids, interesting kids, but also obedient kids. You're also supposed to have a good relationship with your partner. And then you're also supposed to have like some sort of other life outside the home that is also satisfying and healthy. And then you're supposed to take care of your body, your spirit, and your mind. I mean, it's an impossible set of expectations. We drove my father insane. I mean, we didn't listen unless we were yelled at. And he's working and doing all of the things that are expected of a man in the world, especially in the 80s and 90s when we were growing up. I mean, we drove him insane. We didn't do anything unless we got in trouble for it. Uh, we did whatever we wanted. We ran wild. We were basically feral. And Discipline in our house, therefore, was very unpredictable. I dealt with this by being very well behaved myself. I just figured when you can't predict punishment, there are two options. One is to just be as good as possible 100% of the time so you can avoid the possibility of getting in trouble altogether. That seemed like a really good tactic to me. Be perfect and then you won't have to worry about getting punished discriminately or indiscriminately. My brothers took door number two. They decided, actually, if we never know when the hammer is going to come down, if we can't predict anything anyway, then we're going to do whatever we want because we're going to get punished no matter what. And it could be tomorrow or it could be next year. So in the meantime, love life and be merry and do what you will. Why bother trying? They simply figured it was so unpredictable that it didn't matter, and they would take their licks whenever they showed up. 
I was 100% on the side of getting zero legs. Absolutely. And the hammer when it fell was big and loud and out of nowhere and it was filled with frustration. And yes, even wrath. And so, I don't think my story is um, unique. No matter how good or bad a dad you are, this is gonna happen sometimes, right? Like we, none of us are perfect at parenting or being in the world. And we all swim in this sea of toxic masculinity, informed by that. So no wonder some of us shiver a little when we talk about God as Father. No wonder this language is really hard, not, not so different than how people perceive God as divine parent. I mean, with the floods and the smitings and the punishment for sins as we imagine them and all. I mean, divine hammers seem to fall left and right in some of the stories we tell. And with all of this entangled, it's probably no wonder that lots of people, lots of men, don't know how to parent well. That they struggle with this toxic image of what it means to be that in their household. That they feel ultimately responsible and marginally out of control because the world and human beings are just not that easy to control, especially when they're children. Men have weird models for parenting. I mean, according to our own stories, our own history, they're supposed to be just like God, which is already hard enough to accomplish. But then God is also unpredictable and slightly unhinged and all-powerful and also supposed to be all-loving, but then there's this undercurrent of wrath. I mean, what's a dad to do is my question. So I'll tell you what the church does, because we're always very helpful. We sing about God this way. Now I'm going to tell you, can we have that Rich Mullins song, Aaron? Thank you. There's this version of our God is an awesome God, which is a pretty representative example. I'm going to read you the words of a song that is sung in church, not our church right now, or ever. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. And the Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close, and so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God. Yeah, I'm going to let that hold for a minute. Any of us who has heard the angry footsteps of our father on the stairs. Any of us. You bet we've got some spiritual PSD after saying this song. We build this into the spiritual DNA of our kids and our families and yes, our dads. And then we expect that there will be no problems. There will be no problems. This is fine. But in fact, the scriptures don't tell us to do any of this. They do not actually portray God in exactly this way. Just as we sometimes sing wrongly, and we do, we also read wrongly. 
God doesn't roll up God's sleeves and clench his, yes, his fists and lash out. This is not the kind of awesome that we are talking about. So I want you to hear this scripture for this morning, this John 15 scripture. It's verses one through eight, and it might be familiar to some of you who know the I am sayings of Jesus. Jesus says this to his people. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, God prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me they can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. This Father, this Abba, this God is a thoughtful gardener, a careful watcher of quiet growth, a person, an individual, a, an entity that is willing to make, yes, hard decisions that are best for the whole plant, the entire garden, abiding, holding, patient, waiting, and then decisive. Cautious and aware of how every action may impact the future fruit harvest. This God is the source, the root of all things, not the arbiter of all power. This God is a just protector and a patient pruner, not indiscriminate and angry as a punisher. This God is emotionally intelligent, not emotionally disturbed. Forceful and, and powerful, absolutely, but in care and in love. Ahead of the household, of, of the garden, if you will, that does not expect blind obedience, but growth and change. So I want to talk about wrath and pruning for a second. Because these two ideas hold together throughout scripture. Not just in one section or another, but all the way through. Because I think we carry wrong-headed ideas about both, and if we understand both, we will understand God much better. And they're essential for moving away from this image of God as Jesus, of Jesus as an angry dad or a conqueror who harms people. First, let me talk about pruning. I'm a terrible gardener. I love to garden, but I'm renowned for killing things. And so I have a very expensive gar gardening habit, is what I'm saying. That, the first thing I learned about gardening is that sometimes you have to prune your plants. And so I immediately did that. I did a little Googling, but not very much. Now it turns out that if you actually know what you're doing, pruning is a process that is necessary for many shrubs and bushes and vines and trees 
in order for them to be rejuvenated, cutting back what is old helps them to push through nutrients to what needs to grow. In fact, without it, some fruiting plants simply stop producing any fruit whatsoever after a few years. So there are two kinds of pruning. There's hard pruning, which is drastic and unsightly and immediately gets results. Not all plants can tolerate this kind of pruning, though, so you have to know the difference. But those that can rejuvenate very fast. Then there's renewal pruning, on the other hand, which is taking out old branches over the period of three years. And you have to kind of think of a bonsai uh, gardener where they have to like very carefully figure out exactly what to clip to get the tree to grow in exactly the right way. Now these plants look better in the meantime, but it takes a very long time for change to happen. Now both types require special tools and a lot of forethought and a lot of expertise, none of which I have, and some confidence. I once hard pruned a forsythia bush when I was first learning to garden. This is in my current house. Um, it still hasn't recovered, and I've never seen another flower on it. A god who only hard prunes, like I'm tempted to do, is an unjust god who does not know us as people. A god who only renewal prunes doesn't act in the face of emergency. But for some reason, this is the story that we tell about God. A meanie who we just need to be terrified will hard prune us indiscriminately just because one day he went out into the garden in a bad mood and with some clippers. The worst of both worlds. But the Greek and the Hebrew, where we get some of this really important pruning language, isn't about anger. It's not about anger. It's always about purpose, about outcomes, about shaping, about the thing or the community that isn't producing what it needs to produce in order to be its full self, as made by God. And in our scriptures, that production, that fruit, is always related to justice. I dare you to find an example where it is not in some way related to a community of people who has not been what God created them to be. The way that they are not being the way that God created them to be is by ignoring the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Every time. God only prunes. It's a metaphor, remember. These are all metaphors. But God only prunes in response to injustice. The prophets never thought that God was unpredictable or irrational, blind, or explosive. In fact, they said, listen, people, you need to listen to me because once again, you are doing exactly the thing that leads to this consequence, and you know it. You know that injustice always leads to God saying, perhaps you aren't my people anymore. Perhaps things need to change here, and I will have to change them. And then God makes a change that feels like pruning to us, feels like wrath to us. It's never a spontaneous outburst. No, the premise of biblical thinking is Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and God's compassion is over all that God has made. All that God has made, not just one group of people. To live as the branches of the vine is to belong to an organized community shaped by the love of Jesus which always, 100% of the time, ends with justice and compassion. Now, God gets to pruning after careful assessment of the problem, 
An infection in the branches is going to create rot in the whole plant. And sometimes that's hard pruning. Sometimes it means you gotta take it down to 18 inches above the dirt, which is the suggested height on the very professional websites that I have looked at. Sometimes though it's renewal pruning. We've got some things that are happening that we just need to clip away. It's not quite the same, is it, as what Rich Mullins wants us to sing. It's not the same. Yes, God rolls up sleeves and digs in the dirt and gets that aerated and makes it possible for things to grow better. God carefully clips away selfishness and greed and oppression. No lightning indiscriminately flung around in anger, that desire to avenge, a temporary de derangement in which God just goes into the garden and starts hacking away at things. No hard footfalls on the stairs. If God is impulsive, loses self-control, delights in hurting us, abuses us, then I would dare you to say you should stop worshiping God. Why else would we be told not to fear more than any other thing in scripture. Why else? If we're also supposed to be afraid all the time. This makes no sense. This God certainly does have emotional intensity. I will not say that God as gardener is just soft and passive. This God is passionate about gardening about the well-being of all of God's children. There's a blazing passion about the health of the kingdom. This God will do anything to protect the dream that God has for us. This God will make hard choices that will save us from being overcome by the infection of injustice. But this God's anger is toward that injustice, not toward us as individuals. This God is concerned about the whole vine and its fruit in context. This sort of anger, I dare say, as someone who feels a lot of anger and needs to learn from God about anger, is holy anger. It is self-controlled, contained, meaningful, clearly communicated. In fact, the word anger in scripture is much better translated as righteous indignation. And it's aroused by meanness and shamefulness and sinfulness. It's an intolerance of injustice. It's God grabbing us before we run out into the street, into ongoing traffic for our safety, not God pushing us out into traffic out of frustration. It's never indifferent, ever. And it's also not a fundamental attribute of God. And this is something I think we have gotten backwards over the last few hundred years, at the very least, in Christianity. That God is not first angry and then loving. God is first loving. And there's a reactive condition to injustice where God is momentarily holy and angry and then immediately retreats. Immediately retreats back into love. And it's based in that and some, maybe some of you who are parents feel this, when your kids just aren't being the best person they could be, and you feel that push of, oh, you could be so much better. And then you retreat again into, and here we are. 
and here we are. Let's try to figure out how to make it better. The scripture tells us over and over again that God's holy anger passes. God's holy love, the scriptures say this over and over again, God's holy love is eternal. Your steadfast love endures forever. But over and over again, it also say, says, my anger will pass on the morrow. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again and again, we're told that God's love or loving kindness, the word is hesed in the Hebrew, goes on forever, but that anger does not. Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So why do we sing as though this is not so? Why? This is clearly better news. This is clearly preferable. This is one of those places where choosing what is better is no sacrifice. God's dream is that we be pruned so that wrath would no longer have a place. I want to share with you two rather extended scripture passages because I think they're the weaving together of this piece of good news we're talking about this morning. Isaiah 27, 2 through 3 says, On that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing about it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. And then this, Isaiah 5, which I will not read the whole of because it is a very long chapter, but a selection. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning this vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than what I have done in it? What more was there to do in my vineyard than what I have done in it when I expected it to yield grapes? Why? Did it yield wild grapes? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the people of Judah are God's pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, but heard a cry. What if we stop singing about God as an angry dad? What if instead God, and as a result, Jesus, what if we shouted to the Lord as though God were our comfort, our shelter, our refuge, our strength, our careful pruning gardener? I don't know that it would change parenting for all time. But I do know that God continues to prune us as a community and that we have a responsibility not to continue bad behavior. That God was trying, is trying to prune this out of us. Jesus was mistaken as a gardener by Mary after his resurrection. It's clearly in his genes. 
I want to say this to you as we move into prayer and peace sharing and the table together. As you consider the words that we sing, as you sing them and sometimes love them, as we move into a space where we share bread from the body of the Lord who gave his life on behalf of people he considered his family, like a parent would. As we drink the fruit of gardens, of grain and grape, and tie all of this together in one space and moment, I want you to hear this. Maybe you're carrying this in your heart and in your mind, but this table is how God actually holds you. This table is how God actually cares for you. This table is your first evidence of how God actually behaves in the world, how God actually parents you as a child of God. We're going to sing Good, Good Father later as our last song in the service. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear, perhaps this is healing for you as it is for me. Your God is not an angry dad. This is the good news. This is very good news. May you be blessed by it as you go forward this week. Amen.